Well, let's take our Bibles tonight and open up to the book of Judges. Old Testament book of Judges, chapter number 11. Judges chapter number 11 tonight. We have been slowly working our way through the book of Judges on Sunday nights as we've had opportunity. And tonight we come to Judges chapter number 11. There are actually a total of three judges that are listed here. And remember the judges in the Old Testament in this book were not like a courtroom judge like we think of today, but these were um, rulers in Israel who would lead Israel in battles and also uh, in the government in different, different ways. And it's a time in Israel where there's no king, and it's progressively getting worse and worse. In fact, as we look at the story tonight, you'll, you'll notice a definite shift toward the darker side, if you will, of things. And, and, uh, and just to give you a fair warning, it only gets worse from here throughout the book. When we come to chapter 17, we'll read a verse that describes what's going on in Israel when it says, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. There was a lot of idol worship that was going on as Israelites would turn from the Lord and to idols. And as a result of their sin, God would punish them and allow foreign armies to invade them. And after a while, the Israelites would finally realize that they were doing wrong, they were sinning, and they would confess, they would repent, and God would, God would deliver them and they would enjoy another era of peace. And in Judges chapter 11, um, we read about the story of this guy by the name of, of Jephthah. It says, Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of an harlot. And Gilead begat Jephthah, and Gilead's wife uh, bare him sons. And his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah, and said to him, Thou shalt not inherit our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brethren, and dwelt in the land of Tob, and there were gathered vain men to Jephthah, and went out with him. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help tonight as we study your word. We realize that the stories that we're going to read tonight occurred many, many, many years ago. But yet the truth and the principles of it apply to our lives very much today. We believe that these words were written for our learning so that we could learn something that would help us even today to live how you want us to live. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would then teach us and help us to learn from the, the bad example of Jephthah how not to act, but help us to walk by faith and humble dependence on you and to just simply ask, for what we need, knowing that you will hear and you will answer. In Jesus' name, amen. Jephthah is one of these characters in the Bible that we honestly don't spend a lot of time talking about because his story doesn't have a whole lot of positive elements in it. 
<coughs> excuse me. As we've read in these opening chapters here, Jephthah was considered to be a, a mighty man of valor. But because of circumstances beyond his control, he was shunned and he became an outcast. He was the son of a man by the name of Gilead, but his mother, according to verse number 1, was an harlot. Gilead had a wife too, and she bare lots of sons. And as they all grew up, verse 2 says that the, the other sons basically kicked Jephthah out. They said, we don't want you here. You are not going to inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman. And so Jephthah fled, according to verse number 3, and he went and dwelt in a land by the name of Tob. So he goes out, and Tob was this area. They tell us that it was kind of a, a mountainy area. And according to uh, verse number 3, that were gathered to him vain men, and they went out with him. Basically what happened is Jephthah became what we might call a mob boss. He became a gang leader. These vain men uh, that came to him, they went out and it's not explicitly stated what they were doing, but it was implied here that they weren't up to good, anything good. So we're introduced to this man by the name of Jephthah, and in verse number 4, it came to pass in the process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. And it was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said unto Jephthah, Come and be our captain, and we may fight with the children of Ammon. So they're in this season again where the Israelites are being oppressed by the foreign, a foreign army. Uh, this particular time it was the children of Ammon, the Ammonites, who came against Israel. And so the elders of Gilead said, hey, let's go get Jephthah. Now what you will notice is lacking here is there's no indication that God told them to go get Jephthah. There was just, this was just something that they came up with. They said, hey, that's the guy we need. It's very likely that his reputation as a mob boss had kind of gotten around, and they thought, he's a tough guy. He knows how to uh, lead guys into battle. Let's get him. So they sent and said, in verse 6, come and be our captain. In verse 7, Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, did not ye hate me and expel me out of my father's house? And why are ye now coming to me when you're in distress? Why are you asking me? Didn't you kick me out? Why all of a sudden when, when you're in trouble are you coming and, and asking me for help? Is essentially how he responded. Verse 8, the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn now again to thee, that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, If ye bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us, if we do not according to thy words. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them. And Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord in Mitzpah. So the Gileadites sent to Jephthah, asking him to become their general, to lead them into battle. And he agrees only if they promise to make him their head, their ruler. Essentially, he wanted to be their king. He wanted to rule. He wanted to lead them. 
And they agreed. They said, yes, absolutely, we will do that. And so Jephthah comes down and, uh, and he agrees to become the head over their army. Now, for sake of time, we're going to skip a lot of verses here. From uh, verse uh, 12 down through about verse 28, you find a whole lot of diplomacy that's going on. Jephthah takes over the army and he sends word down to the king of Ammon and says, Hey, why are you picking a fight with me? And the king of Ammon sends back and says, Because you took our stuff. We want our land back. And Jephthah says, We didn't take your stuff. God gave us your stuff. Now what you have to understand is that this is, it could have been about 300 years prior to these events that the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. And as they were journeying out of the land of Egypt, they wanted to pass through the land of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And Moses had sent word to these kings in these countries asking permission to go through these lands. And he said, we want to go through the land. We'll stay on the highways. If we eat anything, if we drink anything, we will pay for it. We just want safe passage through. And the Moabites and the Ammonites, I can't even say it right. Moabites, Ammonites, Mosquito Bites, right? <clears throat> These guys, they said, they said, no. No, you can't come through our land. In fact, if you do try to come through our land, we're going to fight against you and we're going to kill you. And what ensued was, was several big battles between the Israelites and between the Moabites and between the Ammonites. No Mosquito Bites at this time. And the end result of all of that is that Israel took possession of the land because God gave them the victory hundreds of years before the events of Judges chapter 11. But see, the Ammonites hadn't forgotten that. And so now the king of Ammon says, I'm going to go back and I'm going to get those cities. I'm going to get that land that once belonged to us. Now there's one particular verse I want to point out to you. Verse number 24 Back up to verse 23 for context here. Jephthah is speaking and he says, So now the Lord God of Israel hath dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel, and shouldest thou possess it? Notice what he says now in verse 24. Wilt not thou possess that which Chemosh thy God giveth thee to possess? So whomsoever the Lord our God shall drive out from before us, them will we possess. In other words, he's saying, God gave us this land and we're going to keep it. Why don't you just stick with the land that your, quote-unquote, God has given you? Now, Jephthah was not a great leader. He was not a great spiritual guy. But there's some truth in that verse there. You know, a lot of people complain when they serve the devil and they live for false gods and they live a life of just simply pleasing their flesh and it doesn't turn out like they wanted it to. And they begin to complain that life isn't satisfying, that life is, they're not happy and, and there, there should be more. And they, they begin to demand of other people, hey, you, you need to give me more. When the problem is not that other people are withholding from them what's rightfully due them, the problem is, is that they have been living for the wrong God and they have found out that when you don't serve the true God, you're never satisfied. When you're living for yourself, when you're living for sin, you will never be satisfied. 
And so Jephthah tells the king of Ammon, the children of Ammon, we're not giving you anything back. So now we come down to verse number 29. The scene is set. Jephthah's in charge of the army of the Gileadites, and they're about to go into battle. And verse 29 says, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Now we don't question that at all. This was one of those many times in Scripture where God chose to use a very flawed, a very broken vessel, but God chose to use this man to deliver His people. And he passed over Gilead and Manasseh and passed over Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed over unto the children of Ammon. Now notice with me verse number 30. And Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands, Then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me, when I return in peace from the children of Ammon, shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. The title of the sermon tonight is Jephthah's Foolish Vow. And what we have just read in verses 30 and 31 was that vow. And I think the word foolish is probably being a little kind because really this was an absolutely diabolical vow. Basically what he's saying to God just before he goes into battle, he said, God, I'll make you a deal. I promise that if you'll give us the victory, then when I get back home, whatever comes out of the door of my house first, I'm going to give it to you as a burnt offering. So, verse 32, Jephthah passed over unto the children of Ammon to fight against them, and the Lord delivered them into his hands, and he smote them from a roar even till thou come to Mineth, even twenty cities. And under the plain of the vineyards with a very great slaughter. Thus the children of Ammon were subdued before the children of Israel. And Jephthah came to Mizpah unto his house, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with timbrels and with dances. And she was his only child. Beside her he had neither son nor daughter. And it came to pass when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. Thou art one of them that trouble me, for I've opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And she said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth. For as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even the children of Ammon. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me go alone two months, that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. And he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months, and she went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow which he had vowed. And she knew no man, and it was custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days a year. God gave Jephthah the victory in this fight, and when he gets back home, 
Remember, he's made this vow. Whatever comes out of my house first, I'm going to offer it to the Lord as a burnt offering. And who comes out of his house but his only child, his daughter. Immediately, he mourns that she came out first and tells her that this was a sad day now because he's made a vow and he allows her to go away for two months as a, as a young lady unmarried. She never had the opportunity to get married and have children and have a family. She never had the, the opportunity to live a full life. And for two months she went and she, she mourned that fact and, they came, and then she came back. And according to verse number 39, Jephthah did exactly what he said he would do. He offered his own daughter as a burnt offering to God. Folks, that's awful. That's dark. That's evil. Why in the world would God put a story like that in the Bible for us? Well, let's think about this. First of all, notice the vow that Jephthah made. In verses 29 and 30 and 31, he went to God in prayer and he said, God, if you'll give me victory... Then verse 31, Whatever cometh forth out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace, it shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Why did Jephthah feel like he had to bribe God? Because we can't call this anything else but that. Because he went to God and said, All right, God, I need a favor. I need victory over the Ammonites. And I'll tell you what, if you'll do that for me, here's what I'll do for you. Why did he feel like he had to do that? It shows that he did not have much knowledge of the true God of the Bible. It shows that he had been greatly influenced by the heathen culture around him. Because that is the way that people worship false gods. False gods have to be appeased. False gods are angry, and if you don't give them enough sacrifices, they're going to hurt you and make your life miserable. False gods require that you give them something in order to get something in return. And now we know that these false gods are no gods at all. They have no power to to do anything for those that serve them. They're simply ways for Satan to keep people trapped in their sin. But you look at every false religion out there and they're all characterized by this same attitude toward God. An attitude where if you want something from God, you gotta, you have to give Him something first. And then consider this with me. What was, Je- what was Jephthah thinking when he made this vow? He said, whatever comes out of my house first. We know we only had one child. So I got to thinking about this. What were the options here that could have possibly, you know, who could have come out of his house? Well, could have been his only child, maybe his wife. We could say maybe a guest or maybe a servant. Or if we're really reaching and we're really stretching here, maybe his pet Labrador. I I, I don't know exactly what he was thinking. But it seems pretty obvious to me 
that from the very beginning, this vow was completely foolish because if he's saying whatever comes out of my house, it's almost certainly to be someone who means a lot to him. Which, of course, that's exactly what happened. It was a foolish vow. And then understand this, that God had already given detailed instructions for what kinds of sacrifices were to be offered to him. I mean, you go back to the book of Leviticus, for example. God's very clear about here are the things that you offer in sacrifices. In the Old Testament, there was a sacrificial system. They brought lambs. They brought bullocks. They brought goats. They brought some birds. They brought um, other non-living sacrifices like flour and different things like that, bread and oil and different kinds of things. But you know what God never, ever, ever said? that His people were to offer as a burnt offering? Another person. Absolutely not. That was something strictly forbidden by God. And so this vow from the very beginning was sinful and foolish because of its motive. Number one, he was trying to bribe God. And number two, because of the content of the vow. It was sinful to sacrifice anything to God like this other than what God had already prescribed. But curiously enough, God still gave them the victory. So if you're keeping an outline, it's number two, the victory that God gave. God still gave them the victory, but what you need to understand and what I need to understand, it was in spite of His foolish vow, not because of it. Don't misunderstand the story here. This is in no way intended to be instruction or encouragement to bribe God and to do what the heathen do in worshiping false gods in our worship of God. Praise the Lord that even when we make mistakes, God is gracious. But understand this, that is never an excuse to act foolishly. Paul said in Romans 6.1, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. Absolutely not. You know, so many times people do sinful things. And because God doesn't immediately punish them for it, because God is gracious and merciful and gives people space to repent and to realize the error of their way, people mistakenly think, well, God must be okay with it then. I've been told all my life this was a bad thing to do, but I did it and nothing bad's happened yet, so must be all right. No. If God says something is wrong, it's wrong. Regardless of whether you think the consequences have occurred to you yet, regardless of whether or not you did it and immediately God didn't strike you with a lightning bolt, no, if God says it's wrong, it's wrong. Don't use God's mercy and God's grace and God's patience as an excuse to keep sinning. Because all you're doing is you are heaping up consequences that one day you are going to have to pay. You will reap what you sow. And Jephthah did too. We already know what happened at the end of the story. And I'm going to ask you a question. If Jephthah could go back and do it all over again, do you think that he would trade his only daughter 
for victory in battle? Maybe he was that cold and callous and maybe he was that evil and wicked that he would go back and say, yeah, I'd do it all over again. But I know that you and I, most of us, if not all of us, would say that was not worth it. And here's my point. For a little while, people may get away, quote-unquote, with sin. But there will come a day when everyone realizes it's not worth it. Our attitude should be like Moses, in, who in Hebrews chapter 11, it says that he chose to endure affliction with the people of God rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. You know, there are pleasures in sin. If there wasn't pleasure in sin, nobody would do it. But see, the thing about pleasures of sin is they're short-lived. They're but for a season, just a little while. And when, but when the consequences come, they are far worse than the pleasure that was enjoyed. The pain is much greater than any pleasure that sin could ever give. Yes, God gave victory. Yes, God was merciful to His people. Yes, the Ammonites were, were destroyed. And yes, Israel... Um, was delivered from their oppression. But that does not excuse Jephthah's sin. So notice with me number three, what I'll call the vicious end. The vicious end. Jephthah comes home. And as he comes home, his daughter's so excited, word's gotten back that they won a great victory. And she comes out and she's dancing, she's celebrating. Oh, Daddy, isn't it wonderful? You won, you've delivered us. Daddy, it's great. This is a happy day. But not for Jephthah. Came to pass, verse 35, when he saw her that he rent his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. And thou art one of them that troubled me, for I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. And so we have this conversation between father and daughter. She goes off for two months and then comes back. And the scripture is very clear that he did with her according to his vow, which he had vowed. In studying for this message, I read several commentaries that, that they tried to kind of sanitize this and say, well... Well, maybe she wasn't actually offered as a sacrifice. Maybe she just lived, um, you know, alone the rest of her life and she never could get married and, and all of these sort of things. But friends, the Bible couldn't say it any clearer. He did what he said he would do. It's awful. It's awful what he did. But when we look at what he said too, it gets even worse. Did you notice here that when she came out, his words were, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low. Thou art one of them that troubled me. He shifts the blame to her. Was it her fault that he made a foolish vow? No. She didn't make... Apparently she didn't even know about it. And he, she comes out and... He immediately is like blaming her, saying that she's bringing him low. She's troubling him. It was not her fault. He's shifting the blame. 
Notice that instead of repenting and going to God and asking for mercy for making this foolish vow, instead of doing that, you know what he does? He doubles down. He says, I've opened my mouth unto the Lord. I, I can't go back. Really? You can't go back from a sinful vow? There's a Hebrew word that describes that thinking. Hogwash. He absolutely could have gone back because the vow was illegitimate from the beginning. He doubles down. And he carries on with this diabolical heathen ritual of human sacrifice. And notice how his foolishness affected others very dramatically. It says at the end of verse 39 and into verse 40, it was a custom in the land that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in a year. It became an annual remembrance. You know what they didn't celebrate? They didn't celebrate the great victory that God gave them. Instead, they lamented, they mourned the loss of a pure, innocent young daughter of Israel. It affected the entire nation very, very deeply. It's a reminder that our poor decisions have wide-reaching consequences. When you choose to sin, it does not only affect you. It affects everyone around you, your family, your friends, your co-workers, your neighbor, your community. So many people are affected by our choices. We cannot choose to sin and expect to be able to keep the consequences contained to just us. It's not how sin works. Sin creeps out and affects everyone in its reach. Jephthah's sin, his foolish vow, affected the entire nation. In addition to his daughter who lost her life. What can we learn from a story like this that, to be honest, is one we should not enjoy talking about? I've got a few truths written down that I hope will be an encouragement to you. First of all, I see in this story an amazing contrast between what Jephthah thought God wanted and what God actually wants. You see, God gave His Son so that you don't have to give yours. Think about that. Back in Genesis, there's a story that's told about Abraham and Isaac. Isaac was Abraham and Sarah's only son. He was the promised son. But one day God said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to offer your only son Isaac as an offering to me. Maybe Jephthah heard of that story. Maybe that's where he got this harebrained idea. But if that's so, he didn't read the end of the story. Because what happened was is Abraham took Isaac and some servants the next day and they headed out and they got to this place called Mount Moriah. And on Mount Moriah, Abraham and Isaac went up to the top of the mountain 
And Isaac said, Daddy, we've got the wood, we've got the fire, but where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? And Abraham said to his son, God will provide himself a lamb. And with a broken heart, Abraham put his own son Isaac up onto that altar. Isaac willingly laid there on that altar. And Abraham had the knife raised in the air to kill his own son when God stopped him. And God said, stop Abraham, that's enough, go no farther. The Bible says that Abraham looked up and he saw over in a thicket a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and he got that ram out of the thicket and he offered that ram in Isaac's place so that his son did not have to die. Folks, that was a picture of what God Himself is going to do. Fast forward 2,000 years in history when Jesus Christ came to this earth. You see... The penalty for sin is death. We deserve to die for our sin. But God provided Himself a lamb in His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was introduced to the world by John the Baptist, John said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And Jesus Christ, God the Son, died in our place. John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. We do not have to give our sons or our daughters to appease an angry God because the loving, holy God of the universe has already given His Son to appease His own wrath and to satisfy His own justice and holiness so that all we have to do is accept by faith the gift of salvation. So for Jephthah to say, God, I'll give you whatever comes out of my house if you'll give me victory was totally unnecessary. You see, another thing I wrote down here, you don't have to bargain with God or buy answers to prayer. Aren't you thankful for that? I don't know about you, but inflation is not any fun to me. And if I had to buy more answers to prayer, boy, I'd be hurting. If I had to come to God and say, all right, God, I'll give you this, I'll give you that, I'll give you this, I'll give you that. If you'll do this for me, I wouldn't be getting anything. Because to be honest, I have nothing to give God. You don't have to bargain with God for answers to your prayers. You know what Jesus said in Matthew 7? Ask, and it shall be given you. Ask. That's it. It's that easy. Ask, and it shall be given you. So if you need something, just ask. James chapter 4 and verse number 2 says, Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. All Jephthah had to do was say, God, give us the victory. And God would have given the victory. And friend, whatever the need is in your life, all you have to do is ask. 
If we ask anything according to His will, we know that He heareth us. And if we know that He heareth us, then we know that we have the petitions that we desire of Him. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Just ask. This idea that we've got to bargain with God and we've got to somehow pay Him off. You know what Jephthah was doing? He was treating the God of the Bible like a heathen God. Like an idol. Like a false God. Let's not be guilty of that. The God of the Bible is a loving God who hears and answers the prayer of His children. Ask, and it shall be given you. With heads bowed and eyes closed this evening, I'm so thankful that God hears our prayers. I'm so thankful that we don't have to bargain with God. We don't have to buy our, our answers. All we have to do is ask. I wonder tonight if maybe some of us have been guilty of trying to bargain with God. It's just our, it's just our sinful flesh that thinks we have to do that. We think God is like us. That if we want to ask God for a favor, we need to be willing to pony up ourselves. We need to be willing to give something. But folks, that's so wrong. We don't, we don't have anything to give God. Without Him, we are nothing. We have nothing. All we can do is just ask and say, Lord, I don't have anything. But this is what I need. And you've said that if I have a need to bring it to you, to ask, and I'll receive. And so, Lord, I'm just going to believe the promise of your word. I'm going to trust you. Friend, that's the kind of relationship God wants you to have with him. Is that the kind that you do have?